0: What's going on good people? Welcome back to another episode of Training Well Done, your podcast on the what, the why, and the how of quality training. This is your host, Coach Donald, and I am here with Dr. Sean Crandall. What's going on, man?
1: Good, good, good. Thanks for having me.
0: Sean is one of our physical therapists that we work with. He helped me with my high ankle sprain and gave me some exercises that sometimes I did not do as much as I should have story of physical therapy but got me back so i can play ultimate frisbee and go and do ridiculous things so thank you for that yeah
1: you put in semi-hard work <laughs>
0: <laughs> so we were chatting about some endurance training sean um fits the you know flow of a lot of the people here at ghp that you know are into endurance sports and sean you're training for a 62 mile ultra yeah
1: yeah it's 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 one month out. We'll, we'll see how it goes. Not a, not a really runner by trade, but we'll figure it out.
0: How did you go from college cyclist to being a ultra runner? Or at least taking on a phase of being an ultra runner.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So, I, I, you know, I've, I've ran in the past. You know, my, my dad was a big, used running, especially 5Ks, as just like go out there and get some cardiovascular exercise. So I grew up running a little bit um, from that standpoint, but never beyond kind of just tagging along to the track with my dad. Um, Ultimately got into cycling in college or later in college um, and then carried that through grad school. And then once I started working, um, just the, the difference in just schedule, right? Like I couldn't go out for a ride in the middle of the day. And especially in winter where it's just like the safety of the roads, you know, hitting a patch of black ice thinking about layering you know lights on the bike that kind of stuff was just a little bit too much and there was there was a certain point where I just wasn't exercising and so I got to the point where I was like well I gotta I gotta do something because you know I'm a PT I know that exercise is good I love exercising um, and so one day after work I went to three rock uh, um, here in Regent Square or close to close to here Um, bought a pair of shoes and you know was just going to get out there to to run and exercise a little bit because I just needed something like that there's just the barrier to get out um, on the trails Um, and I live next to Frick so it was like the barrier to get there was was nothing and so I started running I have some friends who are kind of ultra runners or in that ultra sphere that also cycle so I'd, I'd you know i would ridden bikes with them and now that i'm running they're kind of coercing me into their their longer trail runs and all of a sudden they're talking about this <clears throat> 50k that they're going to be doing in the spring granted i started running in like november um so they're talking about this 50k that was going to happen in, in may and they're like hey you're running now you're running with us you're doing a little bit longer like you should come out and run this 50k i was like oh, yeah like sure why not <laughs> And, and so I did the 50K and I really, I really enjoyed running in the winter. It, it just made sense based on my schedule. It gave me a goal to go after, um, after a couple of years of, or maybe like, yeah, a couple of winters where I just wasn't doing much. COVID really put me through like a funk from that standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so I did the 50K had, had a fair amount of fun. It hurt, but it was a fair amount of fun, and, and the group and the community, it was, it was just a, a cool atmosphere. And so, me naturally being the type a, type a person, it's like, what's next? And so, I couldn't find, or at least this group that I was running with, um, they were looking at this rabid raccoon, um, which, which is kind of west of Pittsburgh, over by, by Robinson and the airport. Um, their options were a 20 miler, what they call a trash panda which is 20 miles in the morning and then 20 miles at midnight <clears throat> which sounded awful you do a 62 mile or 100 mile so naturally i picked the 62 mile which is the 100k
0: so there were three options the trash panda the 62 miler and the 100 miler
1: four there, there's a 20 miler too so you can either do just the 20 miles in the morning Or you could do the trash panda, which is you do the 20 miles in the morning and then you hang out for whatever time is in between and then you do 20 miles, a separate 20 miles that midnight. Yeah. It sounds awful. Like imagine getting cold after 20 miles and then six hours later, eight hours later having to go do another 20 miles. Oh yeah.
0: Because you know how you said do it in the morning? Yeah. When I thought about how long it would take, I'm like, oh yeah, you have all day.
1: Not really. No, no. I mean, I mean, maybe <laughs> you could theoretically try and do twenty miles. Like it's a, it's a, it's a. I think they start like seven a.m., eight a.m. So everyone starts together. Um, yeah,
0: but if you know you can do another twenty miles, unless you're like really talented, trained, <laughs> yeah, you're not running them at eight nine minute miles. No,
1: no. <laughs> But but even then, twenty miles, you do it in, let's say you're you know, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen uh, minute pace, you're done by mid midday, maybe a little after midday, and so, therefore, you have whatever, 10 hours, eight hours left to just hang out before you have to do it at midnight again. Mm.
0: And how long is 50K for our non-Ultra people who might be listening? 31 miles. 31 miles. So, you were saying, um, yeah, you paced your friend for a 100-miler. Yeah. And... Yeah. For most people, like running 14 miles is a lot for the most people in church. Sure, there's like the whole people marathon, like, oh, that's yes, 14 miles of training run, right? But for most people, 14 miles is more than they will run. And if they can run it, it's impressive. You did 14 miles as part of someone's 100 miler. And while 100 miles, you think like, oh, you're just running a marathon, 26 miles, right? Oh, just do four of those. It's 100 miles while saying just do four of those is already a wild statement, and it's like, no, this is really long. When you think about 14 miles is barely over 10% of that, it's like,
1: whew. Yeah, yeah, it's big. And I guess I guess the larger story of the running piece is uh, these friends that I got stuck with and these ultra friends, right? Um, uh, Tyler Quinn, who, who's part of this full psych adventure coaching. Um, he was my exercise physiology professor in... At Pitt when I was an undergrad um, and ultimately at that time he, he was doing a study at NIOSH which is like a government-sponsored government um, lab where they're like testing you know occupational hazards kind of stuff so he was testing heat, um, heat stress on, on firefighters and or just like in a firefighting situation and so he was recruiting subjects for it. and He knew that I was cycling at the time and said, Hey, this might be a fun thing for you to do. And ultimately I show up and, you know, I get the VO2 max testing. And um, on like day three, they're putting me in this heat chamber with firefighter gear at like 50% of my VO2 max with like uh, this heat chamber at like 105 degrees Fahrenheit. At like a two percent grade on the treadmill with a thermometer on my butt. <laughs>
0: this is far worse than the Bruce protocol. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. So, so you do the Bruce <laughs> protocol first to determine your VO two max, and then they do something small, uh, lower than that. But anyways, um, you know that was that was a lot of fun for me, and and you know so I had I had a little bit beyond just him being my exercise physiology professor. He got me into his lab as a subject, and then from there we were talking bikes and endurance and. Ultimately, once I was graduated, um, you know, we, we kind of started getting out for rides together and got to know each other from that standpoint. But so I wasn't really running at that time. I was really a cyclist. Um But he was training for the hundred 100 mile Leadville run. And and it just coincided that I was doing a clinical rotation in PT school out in out in Denver um and had a had a week off at the time that he was doing Leadville. So I was like, hey, like that I'm gonna be out there. Let's hang out. And he's like, oh, I need another pacer to help me through this run. i was like, I'm not a runner, but I'm, like I'm an endurance athlete with, with cycling. But I'm like, I'm not a runner, so I'm like, I don't know how I'm gonna help you there. But I'm glad to like hand you a bottle or something. <laughs> and he's like, no, no, no. Like let's just get out for a couple runs. Like if you want, if you want to um, come participate. So I ended up doing like a couple runs in Pittsburgh with him. You know, nothing crazy, like five to eight miles or something like that. Um, and ended up agreeing to doing 14 miles. And he's like, no, no, it'll be super chill. Like I picked him up at, you know, I was going to pick him up at like 65 miles and his 100 miles. There's a lot of walking at that point where it's a little bit more hiking. Um, so I ended up agreeing to this and at, at that time was out in Colorado and it was probably like 13, 13 minute miles, but out there in the dark with him is a, a pretty cool experience and being out in, in like deep Colorado mountains. Was, was a lot of fun so maybe maybe a little bit of even earlier um, just uh, exposure to ultra running but never really thought of that as like a formal I was just in the right place at the right time or the wrong place at the wrong time I don't know how you put <laughs> it I was exhausted and a and, and wonder that he I mean he finished it and he crushed it and it, it was amazing that he was able to do that and I still think 100 miles would be a little excessive but but once you get to sixty-two, what's a hundred, dude? It's like an extra six or seven hours out there. No, a lot man. more calories. No, a lot more calories. Have you ever done a triathlon? I have done one triathlon in my life, and it was a sprint triathlon at one of our one of the pit cyclists who like some at, at pit some of the triathletes kind of were also part of the cycling club, and they have the they have a cottage on a lake up near Scranton, so Northeast PA, and they essentially did a sprint triathlon where a bunch of us friends, it was like informal, and like a bunch of 20, 30 of us from, from Pitt went up and, and did it. I remember getting out of the water because I'm not a swimmer. I'm, I mean, I can swim, but I'm not a swimmer. I remember getting out and like getting onto the dock and just like feeling the best, the best way to describe it was like I felt drunk because I the balance, the vertigo, whatever it was, I just felt like I couldn't get keep myself upright. And I'm sitting there putting my my helmet on and my shoes on, and this is Scranton, PA, and we're out in the, kind of like the hills, mountains of Scranton, PA, and immediately I'm going down this massive hill on my bike at like forty miles per hour, oh. and and it's like I sh- I shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> So anyways, I survived and it was, it was, a, it was a good time. And again, at a point where I was like purely a cyclist and just had these peripheral friends that wanted me to do something that I wasn't prepared to do, but got through it. Cause when you're, you when you're in college, you're also invincible. He said, <laughs> I shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> you know, that line took me out. So
0: you no no triathlons, no,
1: no formal triathlon. That, that one I like completed. I but mean, since, since no, no.
0: Any ambitions of do one?
1: No, I think I think some of the adventure ones are, are intriguing. Where it's like, like you would like start with like a kayak or that. in like a mountain bike and then doing a trail run or like a hike. I think I could do that. The swimming piece is what freaks me out.
0: The mighty moraine has one. I did the adventure try back in September.
1: Was it kayaking? Or? Yeah, it was
0: a kayak. Yeah. So, it's set on there to mile kayak, and actually from the spring of last year they did a one mile kayak. And so, when I signed up, one part of the website said one-mile kayak. The other thing when I signed up said two-mile kayak. And I was like, so which one is it? Because I, I kayaked for fun. Like, you know, you just go out there, paddle. I'm taking people out. We'll go kayak. But I never, like, train. I never, not even trained, That's, that's not good there. I've never tried to kayak fast other than, like, one time I was in D.C. Showing up with my cousins, like, yeah, kayak fast. Or, actually, it was in D.C. There's the bridge. So my cousin, he lives right by the Potomac. So we get these little foldable kayaks. We walk them out there. And we go under this bridge, and it's like the sun's right up there. And I'm just like chilling. So I'll lay down in the kayak, but the current takes me under the bridge. And then as soon as the sun hits my face, kayak really fast. (laughs) I can cross the bridge, but it was like 50 meters, maybe. (laughs) Do it again. And I never like worked out. So I was on this vacation with the Myrtle Beach and on my drive back up from Myrtle Beach, I stopped at, what was this lake? There was some lake in Virginia, right near the border of North Carolina and Virginia. And I stayed, at, I went up there and I was like practicing kayaking. Like I was like, can I do a mile straight? So I kayaked a mile straight, I timed it. I was like, all right, 23 minutes, 24 minutes. Well, I didn't try that hard, with straight. Let me do a workout. So then I did like, a, I did four quarter miles. All right, those were like six, those were like, what were they, like five minutes a piece? All right. I can just do that pace then I can do some 20 minutes. I'm like looking at the stat sheet like from the adventure try from the year before. And I'm like, I'm gonna do a bunch of 100 meter intervals, treat it like track. So I was like, shh, 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 I'm working like this. And I was like, all right, I did three mile training workout for kayaking. Like, great. I get to the race, um, shout out to Noe. She let me use her kayak and her bike, so thank you. And I had her kayak, it was like this little mini kayak when I tell you some of these people, and I beat some of these people, too. Just want to put that out there. <laughs> they had these super nice kayaks that went from, like, the door
1: to the, the desk. Like, like right a sea kayak.
0: Yeah, like, and it was like a racing kayak. Yeah. And I'm like, damn, I had this, this little cute... The kayak was hardly bigger than this rug.
1: Like, like a piranha, like, your, like a rapid one?
0: Yeah, probably something like that. Um, and so I go out, and... Dude, my watch said it was two and a half miles. So you had to go out from the North Shore to the bridge at, Murdo- at Moraine yeah. and then back yeah. twice. And I started off way in the back. Oh, but I was picking them off. I was picking them off and then I caught a lot of people on the bike and then I caught some more on the run. Got third place. Um, the guy who won apparently wins every year. Yeah. The guy who was in second place, I don't really know who he is. He was younger. The guy who won was an older dude, yeah. but he was very fit. And he was one of the guys with the racing kayak. The guy who was in second, um, I think he biked. I think he they out. They both out kayaked me by lunch. long shot. I came back like number eight, ninth in yeah. the kayak, and yeah. it was like 16, 17 people came back like ninth or tenth in the kayak. Started yeah. like first lap was like fifteenth though. So. Um, How long was the bike? Twelve point four. Okay, and the yeah. run? It was a it was a sprint. It was an adventure sprint. sprint so three point one. Yeah. Um, it was awesome. It was so much fun. My wrist, my elbow at ten. I don't know if I told you this. I like, tennis elbow from that, though. Yeah, yeah. So I had an issue that I would sometimes do way too many pull-ups cold, and yeah. I would sometimes irritate my uh, malleolus in there. This is malleolus, right?
1: Uh, medial epicondyle.
0: So epicondyle. My... Oh, yeah. yeah, malleolus is the ankle. Oh, my gosh, oh, I'm forgetting <laughs> okay. my anatomy. Yeah, epicondyle. And, but from that kayaking, it was 40 minutes. It took me, like, 35-ish minutes to do 35, 40 minutes to do that. Yeah. And I was lit up the next month
1: (laughs) weren't prepared but that's that reckless abandon that sometimes you get into
0: yeah you you should totally do it i'm i'm I'm, i want to do the the swim one but like you should the the swimming
1: swimming is a tough one and and that like that freaks me out a little bit and i mean in general being a triathlete if you have a good if you're a good runner and if you're a good cyclist that's where you're gonna make up your best time so so long as you can kind of get through the swim in terms of total time and your ability to like catch people, like if you're a fast cyclist and you're a fast runner, you're probably gonna do fairly well. So long as you can get through the swim and not fall over when you pull yourself up onto the dock.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, see, I'm I just started getting swimming lessons because like I can go into a pool and not die. Can't really. I wouldn't I wouldn't call myself a swimmer, mm-hmm. but um. So physical therapy, yeah. have you ever been injured?
1: Yeah, I mean, not like significant to the point where like I'm going to a doctor, I'm getting this treated, Um, but as endurance athletes find out, you know, you get these aches and pains as you go, and um, you kind of find ways to manage or you don't. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think I've, I've, and with the knowledge that I've had, especially with running, have had my aches and pains. I think if I ran in a certain way, I can run into an injury. Um, but I feel like I've I've managed okay, and and mostly it's like. Like tendonopathy kind of stuff. That's where I run into issues mm-hmm. primarily, and and again, chronic stuff. I don't. Never really had huge knock on wood acute, acute injuries vinyl vinyl (laughs) that's wood (laughs) thanks for it that could have been
0: disastrous (laughs) so let's talk about some common injuries let's talk about tendinopathy actually because that's something that i don't i was we would talked about this when you were working on my high ankle sprain and it was about these knees which one was the one bothering so this was the one that it still does bother me when it's like in the back leg of a lunge. I think you mentioning like the rectus femoris, might like be weak at the end range or something along those mm-hmm. lines. Mm-hmm. But I had, and this one clicks, yeah. This is the one that clicks every now and again, but is very strong, gives me no issues, but that's been a thing for a long time. And it mm-hmm. clicks when it's cold or I run a lot. This one though, oh buddy, let me tell you. So it was December, early December. And I was playing Ultimate Frisbee and I took this hard stop. And like, I think I heard, I like heard something, but it didn't, and it wasn't ACL because I went back to playing. And it wasn't like I was super adrenaline rush, it was just pickup. But ever since then, I had, it was like an issue. It was like hurt, um, it got super weak. I could hardly lunge on it. And I could run sometimes. And then it got to the point where I had to like stop running for like a, take a week off. Cause it would literally just give. It would, and this one would click this one gave out and I would just have to stop running but then I would like and it was like not like gave out like I would fall it would just give out mid-stride and then go back to running and it would do that on and off and so I had I was at a running group to go catch up with somebody and there happened to be a PT there who we'd worked with before and I was like describing it she's like oh it's a terminopathy I was like okay but like I I exercised it out but like let's talk about those I feel like a lot of people suffer from those because Obviously, a pretty common overuse, not strength, not strong thing. Like, what's a tendinopathy?
1: So, I mean, I, when we're talking about tendinopathies, one thing to consider is that we have a, a lot of different tendons within our body, and each kind of tendon has its own own properties, right? So, our our the tendons in our lower extremity are gonna be different than our upper extremity, but. Um, if, if we take it even a step back, like what is a tendon and a tendon is essentially, you know, this top band of connective tissue, like almost like a rope, right. Um, that, that essentially connects your muscles to your bones on either end. So you kind of have your muscle tissue, which is kind of our active component, um, that allows for some form of contraction or movable part that then through their attachments um, into the tendon then attach into our bones so it's like our muscle contracts and then pulls from either end and then our tendons pull on our bone which then pulls our bones together or depending on our anatomy that's essentially how movement occurs so whenever you move a body part essentially what's happening is your muscle is creating tension through a tendon pulling on a bone and then rotating and that's, that's human movement and sometimes and particularly Kind of from an overuse standpoint you know rarely do you have a a tendon issue outside of like a rupture or a tear or acute like an acute um, tissue injury um from the standpoint of a tendon we but you were really thinking chronic in, injury and so especially in, in the scope that you're in and me being an endurance athlete um it's it's that kind of over time a certain point, the load that you're, you're, you're inducing on your body um, is, is a little bit too much. And what's happening is you go out for a run, for example, right, and you create some level of micro-tearing because you're trying to push yourself and, and build back better. And that's kind of how you do it. You have to induce, if you want to improve your tissue um, capacity, right? you have to go hard enough or create a load that's hard enough to create some level of, of micro damage that then you allow to repair in a way that's better than before. It's like knocking down the or improving your kitchen, right? So you have to knock down the kitchen before you can put in a better kitchen. In a similar sense, you're kind of knocking down to a micro level within the tendon um, when you go out for a workout and then your body comes in chemically and says hey you know that, that was hard right let's let's build back better so that the next time we do this we can be more resilient and and take this impact right now in a tendinopathy it's like okay you make that micro tear but you don't allow yourself the rest or the appropriate rest so that the next time you haven't really built the new kitchen you're just bringing the wreck I can blow back in, right? And so over time, over time, and that's kind of a drastic example, but it gives that picture of over time, all you're doing or the balance is overweighted on the kind of um, damage piece of it and not the repair. Mm. At a certain point that, that can become painful. Um, so in, in essence, well, our, our, the best knowledge that we have is that it's, it's just an overload um, chronically and again, this can happen in any tendon within the body. We have our common tendons just based on what our activities um, demand. So, running, we tend to have areas like Achilles tendonopathy or patellar tendinopathy, or what we'll talk about in terms of plantar fasciopathy, or as what most people call plantar fasciitis. Mm. I know that was something that you wanted to talk about, um, but but you have these common or even like a posterior tibial tendinopathy right there's all these, all of these muscles within our lower extremity that are getting demanded with with running that that can then be overtaxed and, and create pain in the same way in your shoulder like rotator cuff tendinopathy in people who are throwing or overhead athletes right it's 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 a tendon that's creating this this or has had this imbalance of load versus repair
0: mm. So what is the difference
1: then of an apathy and an itis? Good question. So, um, and this can be a, uh, a, a misconception that's out there in terms of tendon pain is itis. So when we talk about like a uh, tendonitis, um, we're really saying that there's inflammation. So some level of chemical inflammation occurring within the tendon. That can then, so those chemicals can, when they're floating around your pain nerves, can stimulate pain, right? So an itis or an inflammation can create pain. But what we've seen or what's come out in research is, well, we can't consistently say that there are inflammatory markers within painful tendons. So not all painful tendons have inflammation, mm-hmm. and therefore we can't always with with, with an amount of reliability say that because your Achilles tendon is painful, that it's an Achilles tendonitis, right? Unless we did, you know, we dug into the tendon and, and had some level of scientific petri dish study that showed us, okay, there are these chemical um, markers of inflammation, um, you know, that might be absent, but you still have pain. So the alternative term that is a little bit more overarching and probably allows for. Um, us to really investigate tendinopathies and uh, beyond the scope of inflammation is a tendinopathy. Um, So you can have um, fasciopathies, tendinopathies, fasciopathy being kind of a, a process of the fascia as opposed to the tendinopathy which is a process of the tendon.
0: Wow okay so you can have tendon pain and not the inflammation that goes along with it and you can have inflammation and no pain
1: yeah yeah
0: okay and so I you brought up something I want to get to but like when we think about you mentioned like plantar fasciopathy yeah with a lot of people it's probably the opathy because it's not I don't I don't think I've ever seen anybody with like actual inflammation down there yeah I at it's not visibly yeah office.
1: it's hard to tell because um, you know when we talk about inflammation and, and I say like chemical markers like what i what we're saying is there, there have to be leukocytes, cytokines. There are, there are specific cells that, that you know, if you go into med school, it's like day, day four you're talking about this infl- huge cascade of inflammatory markers, um, but you can still have swelling outside of, outside of um, inflammation, and and oftentimes we do see a tendon that is kind of fluid-logged, and it doesn't exactly mean that there, there's inflammation there or those inflammatory markers of cytokines, leukocytes, etc., um, etc. Et um, essentially, what the tendon is doing is it's trying to create a stronger tendon. We know that a, a fluid-logged tendon, although that may be painful just from a pressure standpoint, um, the tendon is structurally stronger when there's a lot of water within it. Whoa, so
0: the what's the difference then? I think I might be missing the nuance here. Mm-hmm. So I have read and understand that tendons water, and water now have a great question I want to ask you. Yeah. And they function well, they need to be hydrated. Yeah. The inflammation, does the
1: inflammation affect the hydration? So inflammation because of um, a mismatch, again, chemicals. So, like, fluid's going to follow along if, if we remember our principles of osmosis. It's like if you have more chemicals in one area than the other, you're trying to create um, a, a balance of those that fluid, right? So that those, those chemicals or oftentimes proteins, so if there's a lot of protein in a certain encapsulated area, there's going to be a lot of water that comes into that area to just... It's almost like a proportion. You want the proportion of those pro- proteins to be similar, and so if there's a lot of proteins in an encapsulated area, there's going to be a lot of water that comes into it. So although inflammation can create you know, more fluid in an area, um, it doesn't have to be the inflammatory markers that bring that fluid in. It can be just like free-floating proteins in, in a tendon. Um, but to your question about, you know, hydration and like a well-hydrated um, tendon, that's kind of looking at viscoelastic properties and there's that balance. Um, and sometimes tendons, that's almost like an overreaction, right, to a tendon, tendonopathic. So a tendon that's having trouble or being overloaded is it's like, shoot, we're being overloaded here. We're not allowing ourselves to repair from a, like the rope isn't repairing anymore, right? And and we need to find a way to increase the strength of this whole tendon. And so therefore we're bringing in and shuttling in a bunch of fluid to, to make it stronger. It doesn't make it less pain, painful. if anything, it might make it more painful because we know a waterlogged or a swollen tendon is a lot of pressure and that can increase um, just uh, pain. It, it, or the pain experience. Mm,
0: Because all that extra water is pushing on the nerves. Yeah. Not so much that it's affecting the tendon itself.
1: Yeah, yeah. And over time, that pressure can lead to degenerative changes within the tendon. Um, How? Just because of its ability to repair again. And it forces you to unload the tendon because it's painful, right? So not only are you unloading the tendon because it's giving you this response of, hey, we're not able to tolerate the load, but it's waterlogged, there's pressure, it's just not able to get the nutrients that it needs. Um, and then over time, an unloaded tendon is gonna be a degenerated tendon because it's not getting that feedback of, okay, we're, we, we're, we're loading this tendon and therefore we need to be able to accept that load. Does
0: moving on that swollen tendon also potentially even unload it because like, you don't have the same proprioception of movement because of all the fluid that's there can that affect it as well or make things worse like if you're like trying to run on a swollen knee or a swollen ankle and it's not like outright well maybe not swollen ankle it's not outright painful it's just almost numb because
1: like yeah i think i think that's a nuanced question and and, and more individual based based on the history so i think traditionally we've thought okay you can never run on a swollen knee or a swollen ankle um, or a swollen tendon because that's this indication that we've been doing too much but some people are just prone to swelling like some people some people can have a lot of pain and have a lot of kickback so painful kickback from activity whether that's running or lifting or ultimate frisbee whatever it is that that person's doing you know they can have some painful kickback but not have a hugely swollen knee um Whereas some people might have some low level swelling. Now, if it's like ballooned up, I'm not gonna tell someone if, if your knee's ballooned up to go run, but there's a little bit of nuance of like a little bit of like trace effusion. So, effusion being swelling within a joint, if there's just a trace amount of it, we you know that you have, you know, you're, you've done appropriate rehab, you have the strength, you know, you have the motor control, and we're like six months out of an injury. And, you know, I'm fairly confident that your functionality within the joint, that swelling is not going to, that little bit of swelling is not going to be like, no, we're totally off. Right. Yeah. And, and, and listening to that person. So I think it can be nuanced. I, I don't think you can make broad strokes of saying someone, someone who has a swollen joint, you can't participate in activity. But I think what you mentioned in terms of proprioception is important. And and, and again, that goes back to the motor control. Are you, are you, are you passing the tests with a little bit of swelling that's okay but if you have a swollen joint and your quad is inhibited like let's say a swollen knee joint um you know that can reduce your proprioception that can inhibit your quadricep are you putting yourself at an increased likelihood of injuring when you go out and play ultimate frisbee as you're cutting around right probably and that might be a more important distinction of like hey this might not be the best moment for you to go out there and be at 100. Probably want to pull back a little bit. Um, so it, maybe, maybe does it help? It? That
0: yes, that that makes sense. So if what you're doing, if I'm understanding correctly, requires a lot of proprioception, and your the swole the the inflammation, the swelling inhibits the proprioception, then you just or at risk of making bad movements and hurting yourself in that right. way. Yeah. But if you still have feeling in your quads and in these muscles are still able to be active and contract and put pressure on there, and it's something like just probably running straight, Yeah. that you probably are fine. Yeah,
1: and having a knowledge of the person that's in front of you beyond just the knee. Like we can't reduce that person to their knee. Mm-hmm. So knowing their training history, knowing how they move and how are they moving now with this little bit of swelling, Does that look dramatically different than how they were before because Mm -hmm. if this looks different than the other day you know you're trying to get into a cut or you're out of the blocks it's like if this looks different then i'm not super confident that again right now is the perfect time to be pushing it Mm -hmm. whereas it's like donald is flying out there right now and he looks great Um, and there's a little bit of trace trace swelling you could have that conversation of you know it's it's probably okay. You've, you've, you've completed a rehab. Your strength is good. So I think there's a little bit of nuance in that.
0: Okay. And I want to zoom out one more time. So because we, we've talked about hydration of tendons. And like there's a lot of people that don't know this. it's this even a thing. Like, what are you talking about? So you mentioned about fascia. And like I've been reading on and off over the course of the last couple of years. A lot about fascial tissue in and of itself. There's a gym I used to uh, train at in grad school in Austin. And that was a big part of their training philosophy was in being able to, they got into like all the slings and being able to stimulate across the body. And I don't want to get into the weeds with that kind of thing. But I do want to talk about what fascia is, because I mean, like that's the next level up from tendons and like how that runs through the body. And you mentioned these viscoelastic properties. And for those listening, we've got some very large of letter words yeah. and like proprioception just body awareness and being able to feel where things are in your body um motor control is more or less the same thing intentionally moving I'm think about viscoelastic properties like i'm just that i don't even want to try to explain that <laughs> it's, it, it's it's, a, i'll use it, too many words it's a class in itself <laughs> <laughs> so let's span out to fascia and what i want to do is let's span out to fascia and then let's talk about how like these tendons and and fascial tissue get stronger and then how what makes them injured and then let's go into like these more specific things
1: yeah yeah so I mean I think one I haven't really gone down the fascial the fascia rabbit hole um I think if if we think of just generally what fascia tendons ligaments are it's it's these building blocks of what we the collagen if, if you've heard that some people like drinking collagen as like a supplement so it's it may be something that you've heard um, speaking to the audience um, and, and so you have these building blocks to create all of these structures. And really what, what differentiates them is the percentages of each. Like how much water is within there? How much collagen is? And, and what's the cellular makeup? And they don't differ hugely about their makeup. It's it, what they differ from is, is the percentages and what their, their function ends up being. And so I think uh, fashion... Maybe something that people can visualize in terms of fascia, like thinking thinking about your chicken breast. If you've ever handled chicken breast, and you have that thin layer over top, that's a thin layer of connective tissue that you know is tough and and is, you know you can kind of differentiate that layer from from the meat of the chicken breast. Um, that's a connective tissue that is collagen. That's not muscle fiber tissue. That's that's able to produce a contraction, and so that fascia can be thin. And that can be encapsulating something so it can create, you know, its own compartments within the body so that we have separations of, of muscles, for example, or each muscle is encased in some level of fascia or connective tissue, um, all the way to something that's like really thick, thinking about like our IT band as, you know, traditionally we think of it as a form of fascia or connective tissue. And all of this runs through your body, they, they have... Cross links where they essentially, you know, they branch out and they connect everywhere. And and so it gets fairly complicated in terms of what fascia is and, and when it turns into ligament, when it turns into tendon, because it, it you know, they, they can be integrated at some time. So there's, there's, there's a whole rabbit hole of that.
0: It's like the show Manifest. It's <laughs> all connected and it's then a- there's all these like <laughs> rabbit holes. Have
1: you watched that show? I have not. Oh, never mind. <laughs> but, but, um, so I don't think I have the authority to really speak to um, fascia specifically because I know there's a lot of information and, and people that really direct their care towards the fascia. I do not.
0: Let's look at maybe the difference between that and muscle tissue.
1: So muscle tissue. Uh, muscle tissue has, you know, little protein workhorses within it that can create movement, right? So they're, they're essentially creating a pulling motion the muscle can contract it can move as active voluntary control you have nerves that are going from your brain to the muscle that says move your finger right and so those muscles within the finger contract whereas fascia you don't have that mind to fascia connection where you're like pull on the fascia you don't have that kind of control to fascia. fascia is just kind of there as a structural support and the way that you influence it i guess owing to your initial question of how do we influence it is you have to stress it and so fascia and connective tissue and tendons um, and aponeuroses in terms of our plantar fascia right um come about when there's a lot of stress in an area that needs a little bit of kind of spring and release to help protect the area does that help answer that question or is there more that you wanted to go into it
0: so what i want to go into next in transitioning so we have our fascia that our tendons, our ligaments, the sheathing that covers our muscle tissue under there, these aponeurosis, which for those listening, there are these very large patches of connective tissue, yeah. right? Yeah. Of so the bottom of your foot, or as I like to talk to people about these layers of abs, when we think about our transverse abs, there's like, is that an aponeurosis in, the, in your lower back where those transverse abs all connect? That's yeah. an aponeurosis, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, I, one of my big things in coaching when talk about rotating mm-hmm. is about being able to rotate through the core, quote unquote, mm-hmm. through your trunk, because we think everybody does sit-ups and they work on their rectus abdominis. You know, some people, if they train more, they do their obliques and they get some side to side work. Um, if they lift weights, they're hitting their erector spinae because they're having to do deadlifts and squats and posturally train that. But so few people train the transverse abdominis and being able to rotate side to side, and that's Mm -hmm. something that like I like to do a lot of and incorporate in the training. And I find that, um, especially with like senior population, which you work with a lot more than I do, so this Mm -hmm. is definitely more your territory (laughs) to speak into. But anecdotally, in my experience working with people over 15, and sixty, excuse me, if you're 15, you you're like, oh my god, am I a senior? Like, no, you're se-
1: you're a senior after thirty five. I'm sorry to tell you. I thought I was like I'm <laughs> <at> five. <25. laughs> no, no. I mean, I mean, and and not to not to change the subject, but in terms of masters athletes, like we, there is this recognition that you kind of your your tissue peaks in a sense uh, and at, at about 30, 35. So. When we're considering, okay, how do our tissues respond to load, we do have to consider after 35 years old what that seems like. There's critical periods of time, like once, you, once you're 70 plus, you lose muscle tissue at a, at a rapid rate. So I think there's, there's stages of being old yeah. <laughs> and what it means to be successfully aging. And, and you know I think in talking to some of the older adults, and you may be able to m- mirror this, um, that we're, we're seeing now, both from a, a, um, like a, a personal training strength and conditioning standpoint, as well as a physical therapy standpoint, we have some really healthy 50, 60, 70-year-olds who are super functional and strong and capable. And I think that's the movement of just recreational exercise that we've seen in the past 30, 40 years. Thinking about no one was running recreationally before like 80s 70s and if you were they thought you were crazy <laughs> but now it's like that's that's what's best for you and so we're finding people that okay like the, the capacity that people are able to get to when they're 50 60 plus um anyways that was a that was a that was a separation but i think important for our older adults listeners middle age who who you know the capacity out there you're able to do a lot you just have to tap into it yeah by saying Donald <laughs>
0: <laughs> thanks well and I'm looking at that apple in the back yeah, that's yeah a big part of what I found helps with a lot of hip and back discomfort and aches you know depending of course on why they have a discomfort in their lower back there's a thousand reasons they could mm-hmm. but for at least a chunk of those thousand reasons being able to work on that rotation and that particular apple neurosis and getting that stimulated and stressed seems to be very relieving mm-hmm. um, Go to tendons right, mm-hmm. they respond to stress, mm-hmm. and I have my own analogies for like how I talk about tendons. And over the last like three years, over the last five years, tendons have become important to me. But over the last like three four years of me coaching, they've become like the central point of training, mm-hmm. um, and even how we've even changed our tagline and motto moving past pain and into performance mm-hmm. at a deeper level is really just about making people's tendons better mm-hmm. um let let's talk about tendons and and tell me about the stressing that goes on tendons and what how do we stress them in a way that's meaningful to get them to get better and actually what does a better tendon look like from a not so great tendon
1: yeah so Uh, in in terms of how do we stress tendons tendons take tensile strength and essentially that what that means is like imagine you have like a rubber band right that you're pulling from either end and you create this like elastic energy within it right if you let go of one side of the band it's going to snap back because it's it's you know held all this energy within it and that's the kind of stress that tendons are really good at resisting is is when it's getting pulled from either end and it gets this tensile stress because there's kind of this one line of stress that's being placed within it ultimately what we're looking for within i guess a quote-unquote healthy tendon is that those those fibers so all our little ropes within it are kind of lined up in the same direction. So they're all parallel. And and, and that essentially is what we're, what we're saying is that's the line of pull that we want to be resisted because that's what happens when we load the tendon. Now, if you get haphazard um, collagen or these, these these fibers or little ropes that you have in terms of our tissue that are kind of going all of, which way, you know, and, and it's haphazard, that could be an indication that that line of pole is not producing quote-unquote a healthy tendon um, but it's hard to distinguish between a healthy and non-healthy tendon just by its structure alone because what we see is that some people have really crappy looking tendons and are totally asymptomatic and they're functional right they could be springy um, they could they could be purely functional not having a lot of pain and yet their their, their tendon doesn't look great on on imaging Right. Um, So I think from a concept standpoint, we can say, you know, ideally from a stress strain, um, you know, physics standpoint, we want those collagen fibers to be fairly parallel. And again, pulling from either end is going to create that. Mm.
0: One way I like to think about the lining them up part, because that's ideally what you want. I when I look at doing isometric work. Mm-hmm. And from an acute phase as- aspect of isometrics and getting them to line up, I'd talk about elementary school kids. And so you think about the end of class and teachers are like it's lunchtime and the whole room goes in disarray. Mm-hmm. And I think about that being a tendon that is either unhealthy or you know, maybe going through some sort of tendinopathy or even in the context of not really warmed up. And I don't know, you can correct me if this is actually accurate or not and I'm sitting down and maybe I might be more prone to this disarray. And then the teacher is like, hey, use some camp counselor type of thing. Clap twice if you hear me. Everybody claps. I'm like, all right, I need you in these two lines. And all the kids get in these two lines at 10 and then they walk to the lunchroom. And I look at that being like, all right, we put some tensile strength on the tendon and so now it's doing what I need it to do, whether that's training through an acute injury or if it's in the process of warming up as I like to think about it. Then they go to lunch, let's say lunchtime is when they're done training. And they just go back to disarray and you kind of just keep repeating the cycle over and over again.
1: Is that like accurate way to describing things? Like analogy-wise? I'm not sure, to be honest. That's not something that I've I've read about in terms of this very like acute in real time change in how your collagen line up. From like one set of isometrics, mm-hmm. or between warming up versus not warming up. So no, I don't think I don't think I have the answer to that question. You might be right, but not something that I've read.
0: Okay. What about over the long term?
1: So our capacity to change our tendons is also a contentious topic. Mm-hmm. Um, so for example, our patellar tendon is probably going to look the same way from eighteen year old to wherever you are in life. That's pretty much how your tendon's gonna look from an ultrasound standpoint, from a quality standpoint outside of a tendinosis, which osis, a new, new term. So Ooh. we have itis, we have opathy, and osis is more like degeneration. Oh, right? So like
0: osteoporosis, kind
1: okay. uh, like of, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. so the osis in terms of some level of degeneration or, mm-hmm. or loss, of, loss of death, of t- not even, or maybe not death is the right word, but you can see structural loss. And with osteoporosis that's a loss of bone with tendinosis, you're losing essentially functional tissue of of the tendon which might be replaced by non-functional tissue so like when you're looking at it just from a volume standpoint it might not change but its functional capacity um, and its functional quote-unquote tissue is not not the same but outside of those like degenerative degenerative conditions realistically our patellar tendon doesn't change mm-hmm. after 18. And and so that gives us a clue of like, okay, what are you doing in your younger years? And, and how does that change the the structure of your tendon? Um, and and you're kind of dealt your cards based off of that. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that to note, especially with runners, and this was a recent study that I, I got um, exposed to, was um, it's really hard to change the structure of, of a tendon particularly when you're cross or your concurrent training so when you're running and lifting it's really hard to, to truly change the structure of your tendon um, you have to be training at 90% of your one rep max or maximum voluntary contraction so you have 90% is really hard so if you've ever been close to 90% of, of your one rep max it's, it's, it's really hard um, so you have to be doing that fairly consistently as well as not running to have change in your tendon. As soon as you're doing, even with 90% of your, of, of your max and you're running, well, that, that's off the table. So you're not really structurally changing it. So our, our ability to change our tendon structure over time is, is fairly limited. Um, which, which in one standpoint is kind of hard to hear, right? So it's like, okay, then what are we doing? Right? (laughs) Like, what's the meaning of all of this? If, if what we're seeing point A to point B when we're including an intervention doesn't really pan out to what we thought it would, would, would come out to be, that can be really depressing and, and hard, hard to, hard to manage, but when you take a step back and think about, okay, what's the functionality of the tendon? And we do have people that have increased stiffness, that have um, improved pain. If it's someone who, who, who has a painful tendon and is coming to see me, for example, that even though we're not changing the structure of the tendon, we have improved symptoms, improved functionality, they can go back to running. So it poses a question of like, okay, what's what's truly going on here? And I don't, you know, this is this is how science goes is we have a hypothesis. We either, you know, move in the direction of that hypothesis is more correct or we move in the direction of that, oh, this hypothesis is less correct and we still have questions and answers even based off of those two routes. So I don't think we have a perfect answer mm-hmm. um, in terms of how tendons behave and structurally behave because they don't always behave in the same way that that person ends up being like, or functionally.
0: So someone can have a change in function without the tissue actually showing up in a lab test being any different.
1: Yeah. So if you took an ultrasound or an MRI, day one of tendinopathy rehab, so say you have an Achilles tendinopathy, um, and, and these take time. I mean, three, six, 12 months, right? That's realistic prognosis for an full-blown Achilles tendinopathy. Um, so these take time. So let's say we, on day one, took, took an MRI, we see whatever the structure of the tendon is, whether it's um, tendinopathic, tendinosis, degenerative, and we do our isometrics to start to reduce pain in that first phase, and you know, pain starts to reduce. We're holding back on running because it's an elastic activity that really aggravates that person. So isometrics being kind of an early more tolerable way to load. We still want to load the tendon. Um, but pain gets better in that first phase. Then the second phase, we're starting to add in a little bit more of our isometrics, starting to add a little bit more speed to the motion to see if we can functionally restore that tendon. And then the third phase being return to sports. So we're starting to get back into running. We're adding a little bit more plyometrics metrics if, if it's tolerable. And nine months down the line, this person lo- you know is able to get back to sport you know they have a tendon that it, and you know calf strength that 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 seems reasonable side to side um and you take an mri or an ultrasound of their achilles tendon there's high likelihood that it looks the same as it was on day one wow and we don't we don't know why yeah right and it's kind of this baffling idea and it calls the question what does the what does the structure of the tendon so i never i never i mean it's a, a clinical piece if someone gets an mri or an ultrasound of their tendon because that can give us some idea of what the environment is like right but i'm never treating the tendon i'm treating the person i'm treating mm-hmm. their function i'm treating what their pain levels are i'm treating they painful when they're walking or are they pain-free when they're walking and so now let's add some hills in with their walks and see if they can tolerate that by putting a little bit more stretch on their calf while they're going uphill let's add a little bit of a speed walking in there and that's what I'm more considering Mm -hmm. knowing some general properties of tendon and I want to increase load and I want to create tensile load that's tolerable but again I'm not treating whatever's on the ultrasound or MRI
0: that adds a lot of perspective and my mind is running right now, um, because... It's,
1: my mind has been running for years <laughs> and, and it complicates things and it's hard because you have to give someone something tangible. Yeah, they're coming to you for help. You have to make a decision yeah.
0: on what you're going to act on.
1: Yeah. So we, we, I mean, there are things that we know help. Mm. Maybe we don't know exactly why they help and, and we're looking and they're not me personally. I'm not the one doing the research. But there are people out there that are looking and doing the research to determine, okay, what's the why of people getting better? But we know people are getting better through some, you know, high load, slow slow load
0: training over time. Mm-hmm. So we can do all these isometrics and do all this work, but we really need to judge it by what can you do better and more functionally or in improved performance because you you may you may or may not actually have a tendon that is structurally changing. Something's changing, but it can only be like extrapolated based on the function. It's almost like how to get really nerdy, but it's the best way I can think of it. When they do like particle f- like accelerators in physics and they're smashing particles, they're not seeing these particles hit each other. They're just using math equations to determine. Oh, you know what? Bosons and these gluons, like these are actual things, but they're literally just math equations based on particles that you can't see inside of a tube that's moving at almost light speed, hitting things with each other and then just like using computer monitors, but it's all inferred and there's some level of with tendon changes and in being able to improve function, what's happening is almost inferred because you can't well, you can check out a tendon, with an MRI and ultrasound, but whatever actually is changing, you can't see. Yeah. And
1: I mean, and that's a great point of like, okay, what do we see versus not see? And an ultrasound and an MRI, it's it's fairly good at telling you what's going on, but it's not perfect. Mm. You know, there, there are certain types of ultrasound that actually give you more information than others, uh, other types of ultrasounds based on what they show you from like a vascularity standpoint, like where are the blood vessels, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and, you know, outside of being able to take someone's Achilles tendon out of their body <laughs> and deconstruct it and run a bunch of experiments, which would not serve that person any benefit, right? Um, that's totally crazy. Um, there's a lot of unknowns within that. And, and the only way that we can study tendons outside of the body in entirety is people who have died. And so cadaveric studies, so we're taking tissue from people who have died, who have donated their body to science, and and studying that. But what's the biggest limitation of that is it's dead tissue. It's not alive. Mm -hmm. And there are so many studies out there, pre-MRI, and even even since we've had imaging um, studies or imaging technology, that so much of what we think we know about tissue is based on dead tissue. What's the best way to study the cellular makeup of muscle is to take what's called a core sample and they essentially Does that mean like in vitro kind of? Yeah so they're putting this cylindrical sharp tool into your muscle and mm -hmm. pulling living tissue out of it so that they can immediately Mm -hmm. measure and it's painful and it causes sustained soreness and probably not the best practice for the person but it's 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 kind of like that balance of okay we're going to pay this person <laughs> enough money and the ethics board have, have have passed this for a research study but they get some level of living tissue and but when we're talking about patients and pathological patients like that that, that doesn't that doesn't make sense yeah if
0: people would be willing to accept money for this type of research would ethics board still not Allow it if people were willing to accept money to, like, hey, take for whatever reason that they'd be willing to do that. Maybe they're like, maybe they have uh, no use of certain joints for neurological reasons or whatever. And they were like willing to do that, like fully willing and like, but you got to pay me like a bazillion dollars. Would that still be not allowed?
1: Yeah, that would be not allowed. I mean, uh, yeah, that would be. I'm, I'm not in research again, so take that for how it is. I'm not trying to get. Um, study, study or methods to be passed by ethics boards but I cannot imagine that if ultimately if we believe and know that we're going to be doing harm to someone mm-hmm. then that's not going to pass regardless of whatever the incentives are on the other side and that's why you know when we think about drug trials it's like we have to get to a certain point in drug trials to start completing that on, on people Right? Because if it's proven to be harmful, there's no way that we're gonna give that to a human, regardless of how however much that pharmaceutical pharmaceutical company wants to pay those people to do it because they have this hunch that it's gonna benefit them. Or if we're talking pharmaceutical companies make them money. Mm-hmm. So probably not. <laughs> okay. So I
0: um, just had to ask. I was very yeah. curious. W-
1: with the with the core sampling, it's mm-hmm. probably because there's not a huge lasting you're taking a very small sample of tissue the same way that they let me run in a heat chamber with a firefighter suit until near passing out (laughs) (laughs) okay so
0: we're talking about tendons and being able to we know that at least I've, i've come to learn that you cannot really at least as best as we can tell structurally change a tendon but we can functionally make changes to it Ways that may not be able to be noticed under a lab. Um, let's talk about the big thing that we keep poking at and pulling away from and poking at, plantar fasciitis. Yeah. Um, and we want the full gamut about what it is, how it happens, if it's an itis, if it's an opathy, if it's a cirrhosis. Um, or, or, osis. Oh, <laughs> osis. Oh my God. I almost called it cirrhosis. <laughs> um yeah, and then how does it actually get better? Because I feel like a lot of people, not even just that I personally know, that I just out of my zone of expertise at a certain point to be able to help that seem to struggle with this thing.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, and I'm going to go a step back and call it plantar fasciopathy um, with the idea that you can have a plantar fascia or aponeurosis they're kind of synonyms again owing to it's a little bit of ambiguity of what it actually is we'll talk about that um but in terms of plantar fasciopathy it's a frustrating difficult and largely impactful um pain because you're on your feet and and when it it's painful when you're on your feet that's kind of the marked um sign that that you have plantar fasciopathy now there are other things that go along with it but it can be really frustrating and it takes a lot of time to get better just like tendon tendinopathies take three six twelve up to two years to kind of fully resolve and, and regain function plantar fasciopathy can be the same way and so if you're looking for that quick fix it doesn't often come around so what is the plantar fascia or aponeurosis again it doesn't really matter um, it's it's essentially this this connective tissue we've been talking about a lot about connective tissue that runs on the bottom of your foot it goes kind of from the bottom of your heel bone um, so the plantar surface of your foot is the bottom surface of your foot um, runs from the kind of that, the bottom of that heel bone and then goes into the bottom of your toes and actually crosses into your toes and has, has connections into your toes um, it And when I talked about the ambiguity of what it is, is it from a structural standpoint, um, it kind of falls between a ligament and a tendon. Um, so when we talk about the percentage of what its building blocks are, it falls in between a ligament and a tendon. And what we're, you know, commonly the, the, the treatment paradigm or what we would use to help people with plantar fasciopathy, which continues to provide some relief, right, is to give them, um, you know, ice to the bottom of their foot. So, you know, ice and massage and rolling the bottom of your foot, Um, orthotics, so getting something off of the shelf that helps with arch support, Um, you know, intrinsic muscle strengthening. Um, There's something out there called a night splint, which is something that you wear um, at night that kind of maintains a stretch on your foot. Like a big boot it can be fairly uncomfortable but what it helps with is something that a lot of people um, have with plantar fasciopathy is, is pain when they first step out of bed um, so there's there's been all of these all of these um, interventions or treatments that, that give give people some pain relief uh, especially in kind of the short term um, but when we're looking long term we have to think about okay well how do we load tissue so that we can restore its function and especially when we're talking about um, runners who spend a lot of time on their feet and need to be able to spring off of their feet um, to create elasticity and efficiency with their with their running so it's not all their muscles working it's that storage and release so they land on their foot you have all this energy that gets gets put into all of your connective tissue including your Achilles tendon including your plantar fascia that then you can release back into um, moving yourself forward. So that's the functional aspect of what plantar, the plantar fascia and the Achilles tendon provides. And so at some point we need to restore that function, which means that we have to take that staged uh, um, stage process of, okay, let's let this thing calm down, let's apply load, and then let's return to sport at some point. And so people about 15, 10, 15 years ago were starting to say, what if we treated this more like a like a tendon, tendinopathy, right? So we, we know it's in between a ligament and a tendon. What if we treated this more like a tendinopathy than just a fascial pain condition, right? Um, and so tendinopathies are best managed with low load um, or high load, slow load strengthening. And so there was a protocol out there that, that they researched that found it to be better than any of the other interventions that I provided early on, including stretching, rolling, um, all those kind of modalities that we've used for a long period of time. Where it's three sets of ten heel lifts with your toes up a little bit um, over like a like a towel. So Hello,
0: what could you show me?
1: Yeah, I think so. Uh, yeah, I think so. At some point. But on the ledge. Um, different. Different. So you have to have something underneath your toes so that your toes are in kind of a, a, a what we would call dorsiflexed position. So your toes are towards the air because we know that that plantar fascia crosses on the bottom of the foot. So that maximally lengthens it and maximally creates, creates tension through that plantar fascia. In the same way that we would want to create high load, slow load with our Achilles tendon, we're creating high load, slow load with our plantar fascia at the bottom and you do three sets of 10 of these every other day um, for like three six twelve months right and you're adding weight to it and what they found was people did pretty well um, even with a little bit of pain when you're doing um and i think it's called the rathloff the rathloff protocol how do you spell that raf th. <laughs> combining the t-h-r-a-t-h l-e-f-f protocol and that doesn't mean you can't do the other stuff right you um you can still use orthotics in, in the short term so those first few weeks that you that it comes on you can still use some level of stretching i typically don't recommend people do a whole ton of stretching no so this is a night splint. Um, night splints can be helpful um i don't usually prescribe that for people um but if someone's having a lot of trouble on those first few steps like it's like horrible like they don't want to get out of bed kind of pain i think it could have its utility but if you're able to get out and it works its way through the first couple of steps that's probably okay um, and it can be pretty uncomfortable so if it's impacting your sleep i don't want you to be not sleeping for example i think you know sleep and we can have, that that's a whole other um, podcast that i'm not supposed to be on because i'm not an expert on it but sleep is hugely important for healing so if that's impacting the way you sleep it's not worth it because sleep is going to be more important than that night splint. so ultimately what, we, what we're we finding is if we treat the plantar fascia like a tendon it tends to get to get better over time but again it's it's got its lifeline which is three to six to twelve to two years mm rathliff protocol the rathliff protocol and is
0: is it just that exercise or it's like a series of things that's the exercise just that one calf raise he got his that one variation of a calf raise he got his name on it
1: yep oh it's a protocol not on the oh,
0: oh it's, maybe it's maybe. how he gets it done i didn't do yeah. it, it yet yeah
1: yeah um and how have you seen success with that i haven't because i have i mean i've learned about it in the past couple past year I learned about it. Oh, so you haven't, I haven't no really, one's been doing it long enough. No, and I haven't really had many people coming in with plantar fascia. I'm going to
0: send these two people over. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah. I know why. That's yeah. really
1: not for the <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, oh. No, no. Uh, it's it's not something oh. I see a whole... It, it just hasn't run in. I mean, we don't see a whole ton of volume at, at Foley, and that's something that we're proud of in, in the aspect of we get to spend a lot of time with people, mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean I'm like seeing 15 people a day which tends to produce, okay, you get to see the whole the whole gamut of everything, right? Um, it's just, for whatever reason, I've seen so many more medial epicondylitis, golfer's elbows, tennis elbows, than I've seen it mm. <laughs> any other time in my life. So that's just kind of how it's gone in the past year and a half for me.
0: And so last thing I want to go through is just general training protocols as far as Improving function tendinopathies. Mm-hmm. Earlier, you mentioned you've been talking about high load, slow load, and at a broad level, when we think about runner's knee or generally patellar tendinopathy. Not the minus, mm-hmm. I there you go. That there way. we go. Um, or even like hamstring issues. Or I guess the are those are hamstring tendinopathies. I guess if they're high enough, it's anopathy, But would it like? Or a lot of those sometimes, if it's middle body, is really like a muscular issue.
1: More more likely if it's like mid-portion muscle it's probably a strain and you're probably seeing it more in your sprinters and pivoting athletes as opposed to your long-distance runners which again I know I know here at GHP you're working with sprinters a lot Um, so that mid-portion hamstring is definitely a strain you can get a strain of like where the muscle meets the tendon as well and that can be a little bit lower um, but yeah, you can get a, a tendinopathy within the tendon, which is closer to kind of like back of the knee pain is probably where you would experience that.
0: Okay. And, and then we think about elbows, shoulders, I don't want to get into that. That's not even my zone, but at a broad level, what is this high load, slow load look like? What is that? journey over the scores of three to six, nine, twelve months of rehabbing tendonopathies look like? What are yeah. you doing? Yeah,
1: so like early on with someone who has a really painful tendon, right? And again it does you know, it's more about call and response with people who have tendonopathies, you you want to load, right? There there are ways to safely load your tendon. And again, these if they have a lot of fluid in it, we know it's a strong tendon. So I'm not How do we know it's a strong tendon if it has a lot of fluid? because of its material properties so it's like again it, the studies on it are, are just mathematically again it's like
0: stronger tendons attract more water
1: no the uh the a water logged tendon is stronger so even though it's pain so most of the time if someone has a painful tendon i'm not I'm not concerned that they're gonna rupture. This is why they call it pain and torture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, to, to a certain extent. If we don't do torture um, at PT. We, we don't call it that. Um, but but a painful tendon is unlikely to rupture. Ruptures happen out of the blue. When you have a tendinosis that you have no idea is occurring. You're not having any pain, but you have a degenerated tendon that at a certain point just snaps. Um, so, so that's scary, but if you have a tendinopathy, it's like okay, good. We have we, so? we're we're fairly confident that if we if we create a high load, you're not you're not going to rupture, unless you've been on an antibiotic, called a fluoroquinolone. So save that. So if you're ever on an antibiotic, <laughs> fluoroquinolone, that sounds
0: like a malaria medication.
1: Fluoroquinol, uh, yeah, I think it's fluoroquinolone. We can look that up later, or you can fact check me um, out there. But a fluoroquinolone um, is is a type of antibiotic that increases your um likelihood of rupturing mm-hmm. or if for whatever reason which I would not recommend especially if you're a runner if you get a cortisone injection in either your plantar fascia or or your Achilles tendon or your patellar tendonopathy that mm-hmm. increases your risk of, of rupturing for about 12 12 weeks so you should not if you get a cortisone injection you should not be running for 12 weeks so Outside of those conditions, we are fairly positive that a tendinopathic and a painful tendon is not going to rupture and therefore, so therefore, um, we, can, we can create a lot of stress. Now one thing that, that tendons don't like is, is typically high speed. That's where a, a, a tendon tends to kick back and have a lot of pain. And so we can start with isometrics because that's by true definition low like no no speed (laughs) by true, there's some level of creep and we don't have to get into that but by true definition by true definition the tendon's not moving but you can put a lot of load on as well as if you're doing an isometric against like a wall for example or yeah just some some object out there the person who's who's who has the has the painful tendon is in control right it's not the wall that's pushing on you, you're the one pushing on the wall. So you can kind of manage your symptoms from that standpoint and be within a tolerable range, which is probably like a four, up to a five out of 10 pain during an exercise, that's okay in a tendinopathic um, tendon. As we progress, we're probably starting to add a little bit of movement and that's where like a metronome can be really helpful. So what you can do is you can set a metronome to 60 beats per minute, so every second, and you are counting three seconds on the way up a one second pause and then four seconds on the way down mm. and essentially that is forcing you to be at a pace that's relatively slow if someone's giving kick back even then i might even slow it down to be like four on the way up five on the way down or even slower i may reduce the number of repetitions because the time over time under tension is something that i want to control But if you have a metronome, you can ensure that someone's doing this fairly slow. Someone's tolerating that fairly well, you can progress into higher speeds, um, and then you can start progressing into, if we're talking runners, you can do a walking program to ensure that they're walking and walking up hills, for example, is not creating any kickback the next day or any pain the next day. Um, That's beyond usual. And then getting back into running at some point. Um, when we're feeling fairly confident between our strengthening, between kind of, um, and talking about our plantar fascia or Achilles tendon in particular, doing calf raises, because that's kind of where that tensile load is coming from, that that's not creating issues, um, again, the following day. So it's okay to have pain when you're, when you're, when you're doing it, so long as we're confident it's a tendinopathy, so long as that reduces for the remainder of the day and, and in the morning you're you're feeling okay mm. Wow does that help answer that question
0: yes so starting out with just make sure I'm understanding with isometrics slow no no speed yeah, no speed practically and then going into very high time and attention through the movement but for these isometrics how long are you doing it? like 10 seconds 30 seconds a minute two minutes five minutes like
1: I usually prescribe four by 45 seconds okay, with a minute in between.
0: Okay. And then as they move into actually going through the repetitions, they're doing slow on the way down and on the way
1: up. I've, I'm usually only going slow on the way down, You yeah. don't think about it. Because you're up. still getting some level of fast load, yeah, in a concentric contraction, you're not going to be able to produce as much force as you can in an eccentric contraction. So you're less likely to overload the tendon on a concentric versus an eccentric but but it's still kind of important because you could if you take a lot of speed and kind of jump up into that calf raise you're probably putting a lot of a lot of fast tension and tensile tensile load through a tendon that might not be able to tolerate that functionally again this isn't something that we think is going to damage the tendon it's genopathy because it's anopathy and and so yeah, we, we're not as concerned about that, or of like tearing the tendon, it's just, that's not gonna happen.
0: Okay, and I, I think I got that. Um, you I was gonna like, be done, if no, you mentioned not. something, that you probably saw my facial expression. <laughs> After someone gets a cortisone shot, they're supposed to take 12 weeks off, Yeah. I don't think I've seen any, first of all, I didn't know that, so is anybody listening? I did not know that was a thing, I never forgot one, I hope I, I don't. I've seen people get them, and what I have seen is the people who get them, they have probably taken 12 weeks off prior to getting the shot, or they over those 12 weeks prior to getting the shot, they keep trying to be active and they can't. Then they get their cortisone shot, and from what they have told me that their doctor said, they had to wait like four or five days. Yeah. A week tops, and then they're supposed to be right back to activity, and they're back like they were months ago. You just said 12 weeks off, like please expound upon that.
1: Yeah, so I mean, it, that's probably a cautious thing so a lot more than one yeah it's it's cautious and and it's cautious cautious for a reason it's because you don't want to rupture your tendon there is a there's a there's a chance of that right um and an increased chance when you're when especially when you're running especially if you're a sprinter especially if you're doing plyometrics you get an increased risk of rupture and it's probably not worth it from a recreational standpoint to do that and ultimately, I'd urge you, if you have tendinopathies, don't get a cortisone injection. Why? It doesn't help you in the long run. It's actually worse than, um, worse than strengthening over a long period of time. It gives you some relief. You know, that, that first month or so might feel better than if you were doing a strengthening program. But over time, when we're looking at our six months and our 12 months, people who get cortisone injections in our lower limb ten, ten, tendinopathies tend to do worse. And part of that is because a cortisone injection reduces inflammation. Um, and we want that from a repair standpoint. And mm-hmm. what we see not only with cortisone injections, but something like ibuprofen, like if you can avoid ibuprofen um, while having a tendinopathy, you should be avoiding it. Um, the only exception that I would give to someone who has a tendinopathy, lower limb t- tendinopathy um, to take ibuprofen is if, it, if it's bothering them when they're sleeping. And therefore they, they can get their sleep which is we know is important for healing so that's the only instance that i'm allowing someone to have or suggesting that someone has um ibuprofen outside of that they should be able to tolerate the pain now if they're up at night because of their pain that's a big that's a whammy right that's something that we need to be we need to manage the load in this person's life so that they're not having this amount of discomfort and if you are running and taking ibuprofen so that you can run um, and then you're having pain at night so you take more ibuprofen right you're creating a cycle and you're creating you're running yourself into a long-term injury mm. and the same thing with a cortisone injection it's just directly to the to the tendon and pretty a pretty powerful anti-inflammatory that that can over time reduce reduce function
0: i just learned a whole lot we're going to talk about this more <laughs> off air yeah. Um, wow. So we all just learned a whole lot about tendons, and I'm trying to think of what I'm going to call this. And it's, I'm erring on the side of it's probably an apathy. It's probably an apathy. Yeah. Like I got to think that that's clever, but I need to find a way to make that way more obvious what the hell I'm talking about yeah. um, in regards to like this tendons. Yeah. So it'll probably say something about tendons.
1: I think, and if you'll allow me, just the last thing I will say is yes. not, not all heel pain is uh, plantar um, plantar fasciopathy you have achilles insurginal tendonitis or tendinopathy on on kind of the backside of your heel if you're a younger athlete there's something called sever's disease which is a bone spur if you've heard of oscron slaughters it's essentially the same thing it's just a pulling on the bone you can have a neuropathy so compressed ner- nerves that that can create pain in the exact same area that you have a plantar fasciopathy so there is a differential that you can kind of tease out um, with a medical professional that if you have heel pain, it's not always because of the plantar fascia, even though that's what we, we go to that because that's what's commonly known. So just, in the, just as
0: there's a range of competency among trainers, there's a range of competency with coaches and running coaches. There's a range of competency with physical therapists. Absolutely. There's a range of competency with orthopedic doctors. Absolutely. How do you tease out making sure that you're going to a doctor who can tease that out? Because a nerve issue, like all you said, four things that can happen right on your heel between P.F. or Achilles tendinopathy or uh, uh, the um, Sever's Sever's disease, and then you mentioned the nerve, uh, the compressed nerve. Yeah, like that can all happen in the exact same spot, and I imagine have for the un for someone who's uninitiated in pain off probably feel the same yeah
1: i think it's hard to find that right person and if you don't have a relationship with either your pcp or a physical therapist um or you don't have that recommendation right it's it's kind of hard to get to that that right place sometimes you have to jump through hoops to get to the right person from an insurance standpoint right so you have to go to your pcp before you can go to a specialist because otherwise the insurance company won't pay for it so getting to that right person is, is really tough. Um, you know, I, you know, I would, I would like to think that, you know, within the space that I'm at in terms of fully physical therapy, that we can, we can give a pretty high quality screen where we can determine in, in terms of musculoskeletal screen and, and, and tell, yep yeah, this is something that we can deal with or, you know, I'm going to be quick to say, no, this is not within my scope, but I have a general idea based on the assessment today because you know this is this seems more like a nerve entrapment than it does you know a a standard plantar fasciopathy that maybe this is the person that you should be be seeing and that might be a podiatrist for example for foot pain or if it's someone who i think tore their acl um, i'm you know i'm probably going to send them to an an ortho who i trust um who nancy and i trust to to do an appropriate assessment and make sure that they're addressing that person's goals so I think physical therapists, me, other physical therapists in the area um, who have the time to hear your story and and hear about your training, hear about your life, as well as provide appropriate musculoskeletal examination where they can apply tests in the clinic, not just x-rays, I mean physical tests to help determine, yeah, this is what I think it is or no, it's not. I think we're in a good position as physical therapists to do that. Um, And then to kind of go from there in terms of screening. And we, we're pretty good at, at determining what's within our scope or not, or even talking on the phone and be like, nope, this is this is not us. This is who you should be able to see. So we're, we're, we're generally a good place to start. And if not just having a conversation with someone who's in healthcare that could maybe direct you in a better spot.
0: Does and yes, help? Yes, that helps. And while you're at this, you know, we're coming to the conclusion. Tell us how people can get in touch with you if they need to see you for physical therapy over at Foley PC.
1: Yeah, so probably the best way to get in touch with us from a physical therapy standpoint is to um, go to our website. Um, and it'll be, this will all be in a podcast description. Yeah, so so look in the notes for for the podcast notes and and, and our website, and you can put in kind of like a, like an, it has a, a submission place for... Um, requesting an appointment Um, otherwise if you're just trying to geek out um, you know I'm on Instagram at at PT Crandall um, capital PT and then Crandall um, but that's more of a geek out thing if you want to DM me and and set up an appointment and that's easier for you that is a place to do it but probably going to the website is better
0: awesome so make sure you check them out Um, Nancy and Sean have worked with a number of people here at GHP over the years. They've helped me out from knee issues, ankle issues, uh, stupid elbows, and just also helping me learn more about injuries and treatment and helping me realize sometimes, Donald, there's a whole lot you don't know. Um, and trust me, I don't know a lot. <laughs> We've talked
1: about this. The more you know, the, the less you know. <laughs> I feel like I got I feel like I got smarter and dumber at the same oh, time during this podcast. It, it's it's horrible. Don't don't ever go go into that. It just live <laughs> in ignorance and, and you want, you'll be happy for the rest of your life. <laughs> so, thank you very much.
0: Make sure you all like, subscribe and share this show with somebody else. Um, please reach out to him if you, uh, if you live in the area. Their clinic is located right blocks away from the gym here in Point Breeze on Lang in Penn. So please come check them out. Uh, otherwise, we'll catch you next time. Thank you very much, Doc. Uh, we'll catch you next time. Ciao.